Father, thank you for the time that we get to be here together this morning. I love that we get to study your word together in community, um, <clears throat> especially in light of some of the words that Peter shares with us this morning. I pray that um, our hearts and our minds would be open to you and to your leading, that the words of our mouths and um, the thoughts and the focus that we share today are pleasing to you because we love you. And we pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we have made it through 1 Peter. Um, we are covering the last chapter today, chapter 5. Um, but before we dive in, we have talked all along about some of the themes that we see repeated over and over again in First and Second Peter. Does anybody want to tell me what those are? And that's not a rhetorical question, so <laughs> feel free to share your thoughts. Do we remember the... The, the themes and the progression. Yes. Hope. You can flip back in your notes if you need to. Identity. So our identity and our hope then flow into... Right. How we live. And how we live then hopefully has an... Influence. Thank you. So here we are. Just as a reminder, these are these threads of theme that we see throughout First and Second Peter, that we have an identity in Christ. That identity gives us hope. Our hope overflows into how we live, and how we live has an influence on the people around us. So last week, um, Lisa really dove into that how we live part, talking about um, copying Jesus, and through copying Jesus, we bring glory to God. And today, we're going to wrap up First Peter by looking in chapter 5, and <clears throat> the bottom line that I want us to remember is that throughout this book, Peter has charged us to remember and to stand firm. We remember our identity, we remember our hope, and we stand firm, which plays out in how we live and the influence that we have. And so in this chapter, he shares with us a few final thoughts. He gives us a word on humility. He gives us a warning. He gives us a charge, a command, a challenge, and he gives us a promise. So let's tackle that first thing, the word on humility. And this word on humility is coming um, on the heels of chapter 4 in verse um, 17 he talks about how God's judgment comes first for his household. And so I think that this is, this is we have these chapter verses, verse breakdowns um, in our Bibles. That's not how it was written. So this idea of the judgment of God coming on his household first then flows automatically into this beginning of chapter 5 where he gives instructions um, to the elders to the congregation, and to all of us. And I think that this idea of God's judgment on his household first is what Peter has in mind as he starts instructing us um, in the leadership and the participation in the church. And we're talking, um, I, I think Peter, does, he has in mind big, church, big C church too, but I think he's very specifically talking here about your local church, a specific body with a specific leadership here. So this word on humility that he gives, he gives um, to church leaders first. 
And he does not explicitly speak to them in terms of be humble the way he does in following verses. But I think as we talk through this here, we're going to see that the way he charges church leaders, elders, um, is not possible without a spirit of humility. So to be clear, this term elder, a lot of times we see it used in different ways. I have it listed up here as church leader. That is what Peter is talking about. He's not talking about age. He's not talking about something, somebody um, older versus somebody younger. He's talking about a church office. For us, we tend to think of these as pastors. Um, and Peter speaks to these people as one who is a fellow elder. He shares the same responsibilities. He's in the thick of it with them. Um, he shares as one who has witnessed Christ's sufferings. So when he's calling elders, church leaders to these things, he knows what he's talking about. He's witnessed Christ's sufferings. When he's talking to these leaders about leading people through suffering, he's seen it. He knows the weight. Um, and he also speaks to them as one who will share in the glory. He has had a small taste of the glory. If you um, look back in the Gospels at the transfiguration of Christ, Peter was one of the ones there witnessing that glory that um, came on Jesus. He knows what's to come. He knows the hope he's calling us to. This is not something that he's speaking to hypothetically. He's speaking to this as someone who has seen it. So we can, we can trust the words that he's saying. So he's talking first in these first verses here um, in verses 1 through um, 4 to the church leaders. And he says that church leaders have two roles. Their roles are as a shepherd and as an overseer. So as a shepherd, their duties as shepherds are to guide and to provide. When we think of what a how a shepherd cares for their sheep, they show the flock the way to food and to water and to shelter. They care for a flock. They are aware of the health of the flock. They are aware of um, ailments and they um, take care of them. They help to manage the health. They protect. They stand between the flock and predators. They rescue them from danger. In some cases, they even have to discipline sheep sometimes when they're wandering in their, for lack of a better word, stupidity. Sheep are not the smartest of creatures. And this is the way that church leaders are to care for the people in their church. They are to show the people in their church the way to provision, bringing them to the word of God. They are to care for them. They are to be aware of um, the body and aware of places where things might be going wrong and aware of how to tenderly bring them back around. They are to protect them. We have an enemy. Peter makes that clear several times. They are to stand between the people and danger. So to be um, a church leader requires wisdom. It requires strength. It requires courage and compassion and tenderheartedness. And all of this requires humility. They are also to oversee the church. An overseer, this word is implying um, someone who is watching over, someone who is managing. This is not someone who is ultimately in charge. 
elders are to, they are under shepherds and they are going, they are responsible to and accountable to the chief shepherd. They are responsible to Jesus. Um, they are going to answer to Jesus. And that is, that's a weighty, um, that's a weighty thing. So um, Peter then, after outlining these roles of an elder, provides us with some dichotomies, dichotomies, things that are in opposition. Um, a church leader is to serve <clears throat> as one who is willing, not as one who is compelled. They are not doing this because they have to with kind of like a if I, if I must attitude. They're doing this willingly. They are doing this because this is something that they feel God has called them to do. They are not to be doing this as one who is looking for personal gain. They are not to be greedy. They are not to be um, looking for money. I think also they're not to be looking for an ego boost. Um, that's not something that's explicitly stated here, but I think when we think of personal gain, we can think of money. We can also think of this sense of um, inflated pride. And that is not the way they are to be serving. They're to be serving um, eagerly with a desire to serve the way God has served us. Um, and they are not to be domineering. Again, they are overseers. They are managers. They are under shepherds. They are not to be, they don't have the ultimate authority, the ultimate power. That belongs to Jesus. And he has given them the authority to speak into um, congregations' hearts and lives, but they are not to lord that over their congregation. They are to be an example. They are to model following Jesus as they themselves follow Jesus. And again, in all of this, I think there is that undercurrent of humility, of submission under Christ and submitting to his example. Um, and just, so that's leaders. So just as he speaks on humility to leaders, he also speaks um, a word of humility over congregations. It says um, young men. I think in here we can understand that to mean people in congregations, the body of the church under these elders that he just spoke about. Um, so, so just as Peter in previous chapters has admonished citizens and wives and servants or employees to live out their identities and hope in Christ um, in submission, he is now calling the young men, the congregation, to do the same, to live out their identities and hope in Christ by submitting to church leaders. And this concept is a concept of respectful deference, respectful yielding to the advice or the admonitions or the guidance or the leadership of the people that the Lord has put um, as headship over our churches. There is a caveat here. We are not called to submit to leaders blindly. We are not called to submit to them um, without thinking through the leadership that they are providing. Um, it is unfortunate that there have been leaders who have used their positions um, of spiritual leadership in harmful ways. And I do not believe that we are being called to submit to sinful um, ungodly, wrong leadership. So that begs the question as a congregation, who are we following? We need to be aware of how God has charged leaders of the character that he requires of leaders 
and we need to be aware of who we are following. And when we know that God has called leaders who are going to serve us in the way um, that he has called them to serve us, we do have a responsibility to submit to their leadership. Um, for, for more about the character of leaders, you can take a look at 1 Timothy 3. He lays out a lot about the characters of a church leader there and encourage you to take some time and to be studying that and thinking through how who you're choosing to follow, both your church leaders and even just spiritual leaders in general. There are lots of ways that we are following people who have set themselves up as spiritual leaders. Be aware of who you're following and when you're confident that they um, are true to God's word, then submit to them. So, we might not be in positions of church leadership. We might not be church elders. But I think that these principles are ones that we can take and apply to other situations where we might find ourselves providing leadership. Um, think for a minute and tell me, what are some examples of areas where we might find ourselves in positions of spiritual leadership? Moms. Moms. <laughs> Teachers. Teachers. <laughs> Believe me, I felt, uh, I felt this one as I was prepping. So here's one for you. How about a mentor and mentees? So take a minute and think and maybe discuss with the person next to you how might we apply some of these principles to a mentoring relationship that we might find ourselves in, either as the mentor or as the one being mentored. I'm going to give you about 90 seconds, so think fast. Okay, wrap up your thought real quick for me, please, and thank you. Did you have some good thoughts? I hope you did. I hope you shared them. I hope that could maybe be a conversation you continue if you didn't get to finish your thoughts. So these principles on church leaders and the congregations are widely applicable. Um, and I think, again, the question we need to be asking ourselves as we read sections of the scripture like this are who are we following? Are we aware of who we are following? And how are we leading? Who are we following and how are we leading? So he speaks this word of humility over church leaders. He speaks the word of humility over congregations. He also speaks the word of humility to all of us. He says um, that we are to be humble before one another. 
Um, some translations say we are to clothe ourselves with humility. And this word is one that's translated in the context of um, a servant putting on an apron. And I wonder when Peter is using this kind of language, if he's thinking about Jesus in that upper room when he takes off his outer garment and wraps a towel around his waist and washes the feet of the disciples. It's this concept that Peter is getting at here. We are to, um, we are to humble ourselves before each other because we are all broken sinners that have been rescued and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. So we are to love and we are to serve one another, not thinking of ourselves as better than anyone, um, as uh, pastor and commentator David Gezik says he's, we are to cheerfully put away our own agenda for God's agenda, um, even as he calls us to love and serve those around us. And then we are, so we are to be humble before each other. We are also to be humble before God. Why? Peter says, because God opposes the proud. This, this language is God sets himself in battle against. This is strong language. God opposes the proud. Um, again, David Gozik says that grace and pride are eternal enemies. Grace and pride are eternal enemies. Because if we think about it this way, if we are so convinced of our own sense of self, of inflated ego, how can we receive grace? If we are demanding in our pride that God bless us according to what we think we deserve, how can we accept his grace? Because frankly, if he blesses us according to what we deserve, I think we're going to be sorely disappointed. So how do we humbly submit ourselves to God? We do it by casting our cares and worries against uh, on the Lord. And this word, again, the... The English doesn't quite get the strength of it. This casting our cares is emphatically throwing them onto the Lord. We are emphatically throwing our cares onto the Lord. We are submitting ourselves to his mighty hand. And this is not this idea of negative like self-abandonment. Our minds just kind of leave our bodies and we become these robotic. This is positive entrusting of ourselves to God. And why do we do that? The promise here is that he cares for us. Back to that imagery of the shepherd. We entrust ourselves. We entrust all our struggles and our worries and our fears to the Lord because we know he has our best interest at heart. We know that he will tenderly guide and provide and care and protect us. And he will lift us up in his own time. So Peter offer, is offering us that one way we're living out our identities and hope in Christ is through humility as leaders, as followers, humility in our interactions with one another, and humility before God himself. And so now Paul shifted his, shifts his thoughts to a final warning, a final charge, and a final promise. And this warning, he warns us that the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Um, I get this image of... In, in the book of Job, at the very beginning, um, Satan comes into God's throne room and God asks him, where have you come from? And Satan answers, I've come from roaming the earth. The New Living Translation says, I've come from patrolling the earth and watching everything that's in it. This is this restlessness, this is pacing, this 
relentless desire to devour and destroy. Um, Spurgeon says that Satan will never be content until he sees the believer utterly devoured. So Peter reminds us that and warns us that we have an enemy. And in light of this warning against our ever-present, relentless, restless enemy, Peter issues us a charge in verses 8 and 9, and he says to stay alert, to watch out, to resist and stand firm. If you recall all the way back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse um, 13, we are, this is the same concept of girding the loins of our mind. If you remember that image of the man wrapping up his tunic to be prepared for battle, for war, it's the same concept. Be aware of the danger, prepare yourself for action, and go into battle. But he reminds us that even as we resist, we know that we're not alone. We are not fighting these battles alone. In our suffering, in our struggle, when we cannot see beyond this very moment that we're in, it is easy to feel lonely. It is easy to feel desperate. It is easy to feel like we are by ourselves, but we are not. Brothers and sisters all over this world are experiencing the same suffering. They are waging the same wars. And when we are standing in resistance against the enemy, remember this, you are both supporting and being supported by all who have fought and all who are fighting this same battle. Um, I love epic stories. It is one of my very favorite things. I like to read them, and I definitely like to watch them. Star Wars, Marvel movies. I love Endgame. That's one of my favorites. Um, the Lord of the Rings. And one thing all of these epic stories have in common is um, that final battle. And that final battle is often starts with this like very downtrodden, defeated one person who feels like they just can't like pull themselves up by the bootstraps and fight anymore. And then there's that moment where the camera pans back and sees the entourage of people that have come in support of the one downtrodden, almost defeated person. And um, that is the image that I have. This one's from Lord of the Rings, from one of the final battles in Lord of the Rings. This is the image that I have in my mind that I think Peter has in mind when he thinks about being, um, being, waging these battles along with all the brothers and sisters in Christ. I think he has this image of everyone standing arm in arm together against our enemy. Um, and I don't know about you, but that gives me hope in, in the middle of struggle. We're doing that here together today. We are standing arm in arm against the enemy together. You are not fighting this battle alone. So, we are to remember we have an enemy. We are to stand firm. We are to remember we're not fighting the battle alone. And then he gets to a promise. And this is our twofold promise. Um, this suffering and the struggle won't last forever. One day we will share in Christ's eternal glory. It makes me think of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says um, in the ESV translation, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Our suffering is small and minuscule in comparison to the weight, the magnitude of the glory that is being prepared for us. So we are to look to things that not are seen, but to things that are unseen. 
we are to remember that nothing is wasted. God is using our suffering to refine us. Peter says that he, um, is you, he will restore us, this concept of perfecting us, making us complete, making us into what we ought to be. He's supporting us and strengthening us, making us firm, rendering us constant. He is placing us on a firm foundation. The suffering that feels hard and impossible, and we just can't understand how it's part of God's plan for us. It is how he is molding us into the people that he has called us to be. And someday, as the people he has called us to be, perfected and completed, we will stand and share in the glory of Jesus. Second promise. He um, shares an abbreviated version of the doxology that he shared in chapter 4. Again, all power to him forever. The promise is that power and dominion are already the Lord's. So when we are fighting this enemy, the battle may rage, but the war is won. And while we are suffering, God is seeing past, present, and future all at the same time. And he is seeing our struggles and our suffering not in isolation. He's seeing them simultaneously with all that has come before, all that will come after. And while he's ordering and ordaining all these events around us, he is seeing his son Jesus sitting high and lifted up on the throne. While thousands are singing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. So when you're in the thick of it, remember that God is not surprised. He is not caught off guard. He is still in control. And when we humble ourselves before him, he will give us strength. He will establish us on a firm foundation that will never falter and will never fail. So I wonder which of these final thoughts might you need to meditate on. Do you need to remember that you have a relentless enemy who's going to stop at nothing to destroy you? Do you need to be spurred to action? Do you need to remember that you're not fighting the battle alone? Or maybe you need to be reminded that your suffering won't last forever. In the final verses, um, Peter says, says his purpose in writing. His purpose in writing is to encourage us and ensure us that while we're, what we are experiencing is part of God's grace. And that's hard for us to hear Um, And then he charges us to stand firm in his grace. And I think this is the idea, this image, these images are what Peter has in mind. These are lighthouses off the coast of um, Brittany, France. The strait there is known for really strong currents, um, very powerful and relentless gales. And it is a treacherous place for sailors. Um, So 100 years ago, they built a series of lighthouses on outcroppings of rock. And they shine in the darkness and they offer light and hope and show the way to sailors sailing by. And I think this picture is what we can have in mind when we're reading 1 Peter. That we have a firm foundation in our identity in Christ. We are built on solid rock. We have hope. And when we live according to the hope that we have in light of Jesus, we can withstand the storms. We can withstand the struggles. Those are some massive waves. Those lighthouses have been standing for 100 years. We have a firm foundation in our identity in Christ. We live according to the hope that we have, standing firm 
in the face of struggle and of suffering. And in doing so, we offer the light of Jesus to a weary and a wandering world. That's Peter's charge to us, to remember and to stand firm. Let's pray. Father, we have such hope in you. We have the hope of Jesus. We have the hope of your glory. We have the hope of your power and your dominion. We have the hope of linking arms with brothers and sisters and standing against an enemy who you have already defeated. I pray we will remember that, that we will stand firm in that, that we will live with confidence and hope and humility and shine your light to a lost and broken world. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.